I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow. We return in episode six with Kim Havel, one of the most accomplished ski mountaineers of the last 25 years. Kim has skied on all seven continents, with first descents on four, and has adventured in over 50 countries. During her travels, Kim has climbed and skied big peaks in the Himalaya, Andes, Karakoram, and the Americas. Perhaps more impressively, Havel on-site skied the Grand Teton, one of the most coveted ski descents in the United States. She also has numerous first female descents across the western United States, including Wyoming's notorious otter body on the Grand Teton. In 2014, she became the first woman to ski guide the Grand, for which Outside Magazine named her the preeminent female ski mountaineer of our time. I hope you all enjoy a powerful and insightful conversation with Solomon and Osprey athlete Kim Havel. But your your upbringing is sounds tremendously diverse. What's what's uh, what's your what's your growing up story? Well, it can be a, a long version or a short version. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was born in Tehran, Iran, and we lived there about a year. It was 1974, so right when everything was going on with the Shah, and we left the country right before kind of things hit the fan, and moved to Hong Kong. And then I grew up there for about 10 years. Uh, There's two of us, my younger brother and I. And then we moved to New York City when I was around 11. So city life for the most part, yeah. which is pretty interesting. Island life in its own realm. No doubt. And how'd you get into skiing? My dad was a big skier. He loved skiing. So he made sure to introduce us to it along the way where there was opportunity. We'd travel a little to go to resorts. Sometimes when we came back to the U.S., we'd go to places like Copper Mountain, Mm -hmm. Club Med (laughs) at the time. And it was really fun. It was sort of from the get-go, this very free experience. Yeah. And where's home now? Now I'm in Jackson, Wyoming. And recently? Yes. Yeah. Well, six years, more or less, at this point. Yeah. And, but Telluride for a big pull before that? Yeah, 14 years in Telluride. I moved there right after college, 1996. And was was the transition to Jackson like the stepping stone from your ski mountaineering career? Was that kind of the impetus? or? Not really. I think there was a lot of reasons behind the move, um, personal and athletically. And there's yeah a lot of dynamics at play there. Um, mostly I got an opportunity through my sponsors to I had a full-time job while I was trying to juggle getting into guiding and professional athlete realm and sponsors gave me my dream shot at a very ripe old age in my mid thirties to pursue it full-time. So I got a salary um, from Solomon and hire sort of retainers from other companies. And so I said, I'm going to give it a go. And it lined up with me needing to transition from Telluride. So I wound up in Jackson for a variety of reasons, but right. it was a good place to go. Yeah. But you have a, you have like a super storied career, you know, I mean, you've been called the preeminent ski mountaineer of our generation, you know, that's, was that, did you come into that before the move or before you were sponsored? I, well, I think that that was one writer's take on some things, but, uh, <laughs> um, Titles are hard to live up to, I think, you know, uh, but it's, uh, that was, yeah, that was prior to the, the Jackson move. That was sort of after doing some 
big ski descents in the Telluride area and then expanding out into Colorado in general and then going internationally, exploring more and getting on some big expeditions and having some successes and some failures. And that I think it kind of stemmed from from a bigger picture. Right. And I want to come back and talk about your career because you've done some amazing, super impressive things. But you just had a baby. Yes. Yeah. Yep. How's that been? It's amazing. The best thing I've ever done. And she's one? She's 18 months. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Growing fast. It's an incredible learning curve. <laughs> I came to it late in the game. We had a child later in life and it's worked out really. I mean, it's a beautiful thing because I've had my time to really put myself on the edge there and we'll see if I ever feel comfortable getting back there in the next few years. But it's been this incredible thing to create a human and bring her into the world and watch her grow. And, uh, it's hard to find words sometimes. She's just, it's exceptional really right. on many levels. Yeah. So it's fun to introduce her to the mountains and different environments. Getting her on skis early. Yeah, we have been. Yeah. But not something necessarily we want to push. It's just getting her outside and exploring in different ways, you know, sledding and trying skiing, keeping it fun. Right. It's short periods of time. Yeah. It's probably short attention span. Yeah. 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 It's been rewarding being a mother. Yes, extremely. It's a life fulfillment in other ways. I think for me in skiing, if I'd kept on the track I was going, I, I already felt like I was missing something. We wanted to have a family. So it was the perfect time, the perfect fit. And I didn't feel like I was missing out by doing it because it's important to me and having the choice to have a child. Um, you want to be, I want to be a dedicated uh, person to her. Mm -hmm. I have a responsibility to her to show her the best path I can in life. So that means for a little while, especially the last year and a half, spending much of my time with her versus pursuing other things in the mountains. Right. Yeah. That balance is evening out now more so, but it, in the beginning it's full-time mom. I believe it. Yeah. I would imagine it's full, probably full-time forever, right? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have yeah. a ways to go. <laughs> right. And how do you balance being a, you know, professional athlete and a, and a mother? I'd imagine it's challenging. It was in the beginning, a lot of, a lot of learning, um, we didn't sleep much. Some people get lucky, some don't. So I didn't sleep much in the beginning. Right. But it just took time. Last winter, it was a gradual progression, getting out in the field more and balancing work days with baby days. And then this year, it's the balance has shifted more to mountain time because she needs more interaction with other kids her age and so forth, socialization. So I think every every few months, there's a shift and you rebalance again. But I'm learning, Pete's learning, um, and we're, we're finding our way. Yeah. It comes fairly naturally if you, if you let it flow. Right. We're mammals. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy because we sat down and chatted with Hillary and earlier in this month, and she was saying how she, she left on a huge expedition when I think her kid was 10 months old. Yep. And it was a super rowdy experience. And I was on that trip. Oh, right on. <laughs> yeah. Small world. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, how much she learned from, you know, just such a change in, you know, in life in that short time frame. I think roughly the same age as your kid. Yeah. 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 I think she said she cried every day. And yeah, crazy. Um, has your, has your uh, view of risk changed over time? Like from the time you were in your 20s to now having a kid? 
Oh, I don't, I think the more close calls I've had and personal, um, I guess you can say failures slash accidents, incidents, has re has rebalanced my perspective on risk. Uh, becoming a mom, that I'm still figuring out because I haven't had much opportunity to go really big yet. And so I've had a few and I've noticed a shift in my mental game that's not as sharp as I'd like it to be, sort of a lack of focus, if you will, at certain moments that my mind kind of shifts to, huh, maybe I shouldn't be, you know, taking this specific risk in this circumstance, but I haven't put it to the test yet quite to the extent that I have in the past. So I think that'll happen over the next couple of years. And uh, my priority is my family at this point. So I think there's that shift. We'll right. see where it leaves me. <laughs> yeah, it's a noble priority for sure. But I, I think, you know, reading about you, you're a very calculated person, right? When you talk, when I've read about you talk about risk and, you know, how you've approached it and it's very seemingly dogmatic in the mountains. I tried, I mean, I've tried to, I, I think I'm calculated. I, we probably all do. Um, but you I have I, to be if you're still here at yeah. what, early 40s. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that it's been a very slow process, um, over time, you know, in the beginning, when you know less, you probably take on more risk and don't realize it. And then as you grow through different iterations of mountain travel, you learn through those. And then again, the close calls I've had, um, near death experiences and avalanches and so forth. And through that, a more assessment and understanding of mountain travel, and then you end up ultimately where I am now with a family and, and trying to reconfigure what that means as well. But uh, I think my margins are greater. I want more room um, in that so that when I ultimately I'm out there, if I think that there's anything that's not safe, I'll probably back off a lot more than I have before. But I generally don't go out if I think there is anyway. So right. the recalibrating is difficult to to express, I guess, unless you're out in the field. Right. Well, I'd imagine it's a very instructional tool that you can then use as a parent, I would think. Yeah, that's going to be tricky, trying to let her have freedom when I know <laughs> how much risk comes with that. That is going to be interesting to see how we, we handle that in the future. If she's interested in pursuing what we're into, right. you know, backcountry skiing and ski mountaineering and so forth, definitely something not something we're going to push on our our child right she might be in the ballet yeah exactly <laughs> or nordic we're like nordic skiing that would be awesome that would be awesome <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah it, it's fascinating to me because you've like you've on-site skied the grand teton and the skillet in 48 hours right mm -hmm. and you're the first woman to ski their otter body route and guide the grand teton so those are huge huge accomplishments um because it's a grand, that's arguably the the most iconic ski descent in the lower 48. I, I get annoyed when I read about this in our industry where, and I, I talked about this with Hillary, where it's always, you know, the first woman or, you know, one of X women. Does that, the way that we've categorized that, especially considering the day and age that we're in now, does that bother you as a female athlete? No, actually, I have a different take on that. I and I'm going to talk about this tomorrow, but <laughs> uh, I, I think it's actually really important. I don't think it takes away from women as a whole. I think we, ha we have some catching up to do to level the playing field, to achieve equal footing. 
in my mind, it's not necessarily, in some cases, uh, with Margot and La Rambla, you know, achieving that, I think, was really incredible. Right. I don't think it takes away from her accomplishment to call it a first female ascent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's about putting female athletes that do these things on a pedestal. It's not that anyone's that much better. To me, I see it as a symbolic move. I see it as opening the door. And really, it's interesting. Um, I'm inspired when I see female climbers do something like that. Then I think, wow, I can do that more likely than if I see a male in some circumstances. And that's, I mean, that's how I sort of look on when I um, talk about my first female descents and the rare cases that I do. Uh, and when somebody else in the media or wherever mentions things like that, I think it's more of an opening uh, than a categorization that takes away from the achievement. Right on. We need it. We're, mm-hmm. we're like I said, catching up. So anything that can bring up our level and also show uh, the world as a whole that we're capable of equal accomplishments right. really helps our cause in, in bigger picture, pay in the bigger picture, Yeah. <laughs> things like that. Yeah, and it is an issue in our industry. I mean, it, there is a gender inequality when it comes to sponsor yeah absolutely payments right yep yeah Yeah. opportunities for women in ski film still limited opportunity for companies companies wanting to put that money into marketing uh the more we get in front of people and the more there's a recognition of us doing things uh, on an equal basis with men i think that should help our progress we're still judged a ton as, you know, there's a lot of assumptions in the field that if there's men with women, the men are the ones leading the charge. And that's often not the case these mm-hmm. days. So if we can show, truly show and recognize that women are doing this on their own or as female teams, I think it helps all of us. Right. Totally. How do you see your role in that moving the, the needle there in the future? <laughs> I don't really. I mean, all my athletic pursuits, everything that I've done has really been because I'm drawn to the aesthetics in skiing. I've never been a big numbers person. I've never been about speed per se. Obviously, you need a certain amount to be efficient in the mountains, but the numbers haven't ever driven me. I got into the sport for the aesthetics. I've always been drawn to certain lines, certain peaks, things that I find really beautiful, exciting, a challenge. But um, so for me, it's I don't pick things to sort of evolve the sport or to do things if it happens as a consequence of an achievement that's great but I don't know what my future role is I'm going to keep doing what I love to do and if that helps open some more doors helps affects other things I think I found myself it's actually really interesting this year to me has been the year of the woman Mm -hmm. in my life Uh, being here for the festival I've worked with a ton of women I'm totally blown away by how many women have shown up for these clinics uh, the last week I did an Arcteryx Backcountry Academy, same thing. Yeah. Most of the women that have, people that have hired me thus far for guiding this year, majority have been women. And a lot of them have been extremely strong. And that has been so cool. Yeah. Something I couldn't have really conceived of before it happened. Mm-hmm. But 2017 into 18 has been, in my mind, about women. Yeah. It's so a, seeing that progress is... It's empowering, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah, it's nice to change the pace and we do so many events and we learned right out of the gate the women's events they are the ones that fill up immediately winter summer it doesn't matter oh really doesn't matter what sport yeah and i think it's been really rewarding for us to see where we added you know a a lot more women's specific events particularly in the fall and at mountain festival but this fall we had a show with caroline gleich similar to your 
presentation tomorrow with the backcountry women where it was in the shop and, you know, kind of down home and, and whatnot. But she's a big personality and you know, small woman, big personality. And the room was packed and we had guys giving us grief that they couldn't come. And like not slouch dudes either, really, you know, people who are out there doing it. So it's, it's nice to see a change. Yeah. yeah. It's got to probably feel, I would think, empowering as a female guide and to see that response. It's nice to see the shift. I mean, there's more and more IFMGA full cert females coming to the forefront. Um, yeah, the progression just in particular in the last few years. I mean, I started backcountry skiing 22 years ago, I was thinking. the other Yeah. And uh, from where I started, where I was basically begging guy friends and people that I respected to take me out skiing, the the shift now to be involved. Oh, yeah, I kind of digressed on my thought there that um, t- I think I see my role in this year of the woman. I've had an opportunity to sort of help women go in the direction they want to go. And that's the best thing I can do because I didn't really have that opportunity um, mm-hmm. from a woman. And I learned a ton from really great men that kind of took me in and it became an it scenario. There was, it was gender free zone as far as I could tell, but to have the opportunity from, from women, I think is, is really lucky. And that's where we're shifting to now is there more and more women being able to help other women gain traction in different sport arenas. Right. It's going to be a compounding effect, I would think. Yeah, I hope so. That's super cool. Um, And you've been great to be part of that. You've been really supportive and helpful of getting a lot of us um, moving forward. You're a component to that. The more people in your kind of position that uh, support all of us and encourage us and give us opportunities and platforms to express ourselves and get into the field and help others, it's it's amazing. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, we take a lot of pride in seeing someone who's never been in the backcountry, even if they go out and flail, they usually love it and they just want more. I think that's kind of the best community service we can do as a retail organization or, you know, just humans in general. Um, but it's an interesting point. Do you, did you have specific mentors as you kind of went through your career? Not really. I mean, in the beginning, no, I was kind of gravitating towards people I knew had great reputations in the mountains that knew their stuff. And I bugged them. And simultaneously, I was trying to build up the skill set that would make people want to take you with them in the mountains. But it was a long time before I skied something first, before I felt confident assessing a slope for myself and, and jumping in. And uh, it took a lot of mileage. And it was, I'd say, I'd say 100% actually with men, probably for the first seven years or something. I logged some time. But back then, gear was different. There wasn't as much information available for for creating a knowledge base in the mountains. Now right. it's very different. People yeah. accelerate much more quickly. But I think that time helped me develop a better mountain sense. Right. Yeah. It's huh, yeah. awesome. Um, can we talk about Glenn Polson? Yeah. I love Glenn. I do too. I mean, we all do here. Glenn's like, for those for those people who don't know Glenn, he was. We joke around that he was raised by wolves in Squaw Valley, and and he's probably in his what early fifties. It's vague, but, but Cat- going on twenty five, and yeah, and he's just this wonderful old soul. And I know you guys are close. You must have done some pretty uh, engaging play together. Yeah, I'd say Glenn was a mentor of sorts for me. You, I actually met mentors later in my career. 
So people that I could quickly identify as wanting to learn from and wanting to go on trips with uh, to gain better movement in the mountains, a better understanding of how to approach big stuff. And Glenn's actually our daughter's godfather. Oh, nice. (laughs) And he and I met on Denali in 2008 and became fast friends up on the peak. We were just kind of like-minded souls. Was this after the Whippet story? Uh, Yes, after the avalanche. Yeah. Yep. But we, yeah, we had met on that same trip. Okay. Yeah. And uh, with John Morrison. Mm Mm-hmm. And Glenn and I just kind of connected and hit it off. And so we proceeded to go on a number of expeditions from there forward, everywhere from Aconcagua to Greenland to Norway to Antarctica. Uh, We've teamed up as co-guides on scenarios. Um, Often in the beginning, I would end skiing in in the Sierra. He introduced me to a lot of great stuff out there, both skiing and climbing. And introduced me to some of my great partners to, partners to this day. He's a very good connector. Mm-hmm. Just a very special spirit. I think when you get a chance to connect with someone like that, you should do your darndest to listen, absorb, follow. And maybe sometimes he learns from me, but I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. He's, Kidding, he's very much yeah. that, the, the, um, the hub of the wheel. And he has all these spokes that radiate out to everywhere like everyone knows glenn polson it was really nice to see him get some you know some love from the magazines lately and and he's just uh i feel like he's a guy that's cut from a different cloth and i wonder in the future if yeah people like that will exist yeah you know i wonder too i i mean i think they do these homegrown people of the earth uh we're definitely dealing with a social media phenomenon that many of us are navigating poorly many of us are navigating well and i think it'll because we have to because we have to (laughs) by default just to you know survive in career sets you know career paths that you've chosen but um he's managed you know his he's got a purity of pursuit there that's hard to replicate and i actually think it keeps you safer and more true to your path when you can avoid all the limelight and all the need I truly wonder sometimes how many people would be doing what they're doing in the mountains if they didn't talk about it. Um, And that's that's a harsh thing to say because I play by those rules too. But I remember back early days in Telluride, the group of us, small band that would go out and there was a pure love and there was no one to know about it. We didn't really have any photos. We just kind of did what we did. Because you loved it. Yeah. And Glenn embodies that. And I think a lot of us are drawn to that, that have moved on to a different path. And he still represents everything that was important to us. So he's sort of the gold standard. Right. And it's really wonderful to be in the mountains with him. It's just good, clean, fun, really beautiful travel. His understanding of terrain is pretty phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Watching his selection of routes is always kind of, you're like, yeah. That was really smart. Right. How you you navigated through that, and my partner Pete um, has very much some of the same kind of ethic. And he grew up in Wyoming. He grew up in an outfitting family. Watching him navigate through terrain too. He's he runs pack trips and he's a hunting guide. And you can plop him anywhere, and he figures out how to get from here to there most efficiently make sense of his surroundings immediately if you you know he could get lost somebody could try and get him lost and he'd find his way out and Mm -hmm. i really admire that it's an old school skill set right and it's a a pretty it speaks to again the mountain sense that i really admire in people the art of mountain travel it is an art i think yeah yeah 
I think there's something to be said too, you know, guys like Glenn or these lifelong commitments to this craft. You know, there's not a lot of people like that. And I think it's really refreshing and admirable. And like you said, we could all learn a thing or 10 from that, (laughs) you know, living that life. But yeah, he's a, he's a phenomenal person. And I see him, his kind of invisible hand, like guiding a lot of people in Tahoe too. And they may or may not even know it. Yeah. I think he's influences most everyone he's around. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a special quality. Right. It always makes me feel good when Glenn shows up at one of our events. I'm like, yes. Yeah. It means it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, What uh, is, do you view uh, traveling in the mountains as a kind of a spiritual endeavor? Yes, very much so. Why do you think that is? Um, I think from when I was first introduced to the mountains, it, it provided me with, oh, the mountains have given me a ton of gifts. But as someone who grew up in city environments, there was first this freedom and then there was sort of this proving ground. And it's a place that provided me with a ton of the confidence that I needed coming from sort of an awkward childhood, moving around, upbringing, not quite ever fitting in. The mountains gave me um, a sense of home, sense of security, a sense of faith and again in my felt in myself building that confidence through travel in them and being exposed to them over the years I think I just sort of gained a yeah it's a it's a powerful experience it's always from the get-go whether I'm on my own um, when I was first searching out things in Telluride or if I was with teams it was really important to me who I spent time with I made that mistake in expedition travel where I didn't always choose my partners wisely because I was so excited to go on some trips and get to certain areas and if the funding lined up I just kind of went without knowing people very well and I that's not a very smart way to do it I think that when you pick the right people, it's a very pure and spiritual experience and you just enjoy your time there so much more. I have now gotten to a point with my own expertise and as my skill set evolved that I'm very careful about who I pick to go with. I want to enjoy myself. I want them to be out there for the right reasons, myself to be out there for the right reasons. And you don't always line up with people on the same level of communication. I don't want to often be rushed in my travel. I pick my lines a certain way, and I meet a fair amount of people that look at things the same way I do, so I sort of gravitate, like Glenn, to spending time with people like that who want to have fun, who want to enjoy it. It's not necessarily about pushing other boundaries at any given time. So, yeah, there's, there's a, it's, a, it's a place that I don't really want to um, tarnish. Right with the wrong people or Mm -hmm. the wrong goals yeah and it's i love i think it's peter croft's quote where you know he talks about when you when you get into these sports it's about the what you know how hard you're climbing or how hard you're skiing and then as you get either you know more tenured at the sport or older it becomes about the where you know and the what to a degree and then you evolve a little more and it finally becomes about the, the people you're doing it with and the rest kind of is ancillary to the people you're sharing the experience with. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately I've found that it has come back around to the people you're with. That is the ultimate thing. 
And like I said, I, I learned that the hard way. My first big expedition was to Amadablam in Nepal. And I went with a group of guys from my SAR team that I'd spent years in the field with that I knew had my back, ultimate trust. And I kind of assumed a guy on our team put the whole trip together. Everything was seamless, really. We had the usual hurdles with people getting sick and things like that. But as far as the team, I've never felt more secure in a mountain endeavor in my life. And that was my first trip. And it went so well that I just assumed, oh, it goes like this all the time. Right. You just put together a team and you go. <laughs> and quickly I learned it was because I logged so much time with these guys. We knew each other's highs and lows. We accepted our shortcomings. Right. That's hard to do when you don't know someone really well and you start having some of the things that come into play on expeditions, whether it's ego or personal preference or stress. Um, stress, yeah group dynamics, then everything can kind of get thrown off. And if you don't have that foundation laid, it can really mess up how you pursue the bigger goal. Right. It's interesting too to me because usually when we when we sit down with people and chat, obviously everyone we chat was a very high-end accomplished athlete, but it's always interesting to me, you know, to, to talk to people and hear about their, this really authentic, um, real experience that we have on these expeditions you know good and bad but and and then sometimes when we come home it's a little bit of a struggle because we aren't living this charged you know visceral life do you do you have a have you ever struggled with that yeah re-entry is always really hard yeah especially when you go on those two-month trips to the himalaya or elsewhere karakoram it's you're so engaged and you're dealing with such a heightened level of existence and then you come back and it's not that the world is mundane but you just try and figure out how you take what you just learned and some of the really terrifying things and some of the really exhilarating things and how do you reinsert but i i've generally found if you give yourself a week or two just slow decompression right that it kind of the pieces fall into place and you start really processing the experience and then you hopefully grow from the shortcomings and the progressions within the, the time that you were there. So expeditions are instructional for you, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> how do you, how do you take that? Cause it's a really, like you said, heightened fashion of living, you know, how do you, how do you take those skills and kind of apply them to your life or even do you, or you're just like, ah. Oh next expedition <laughs> I think it gives you again however you perform if it's poorly like you learn where you need to improve for the future and if it's well then you sort of gain a sense of confidence really that's continually through my experience I've just gained more and more self-awareness um, more and more understanding and faith in myself in the mountains and where my where I come up short and where I don't um, and so that's sort of what the expedition takeaways are for me Right. Yeah. Corey, when we chatted with Corey, he talked about coming back and like being confused by life. Yeah. That, that was pretty telling. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of, I mean, it's hard to, it's not maybe fair to many to compare it to a war zone, but in some ways there's that ultimate life or death battle going on. It's a selfish pursuit. Right. So you're not fighting on behalf of your country, but um, there's similar aspects to it that you're mm -hmm. out in the field and, you're trying to, to go for some great goal and you are dealing with crevasses and objective hazards and things that go wrong with the team and sickness and high altitude issues and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And 
it's pretty real. And sometimes evacuation uh, plans are not possible. You know, evacuation potential is limited. And so it's full on. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating, too, because, you know, Barry Blanchard's coming Thursday night. And I've been reading a lot about him and his take on that is, well, in many ways, tremendously dark, you know, but also, you know, almost as if through the objective hazards and the trials and tribulations that in a few instances, you come out the other end and you get this glimpse of kind of the who knows what, but he speaks very powerfully to that. So it's, I think it's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, I've I've had a pretty rocky road, I'd say in my expedition, like the shorter trips have been more rewarding in terms of the actual takeaways, immediate takeaways, the easier takeaways of great success on skiing new lines and exploring new areas. The bigger 8,000 meter peak endeavors, way more complicated and darker picture for me, I'd say. Just um, a lot more with the dynamics and what you try to navigate in those few months together with people that maybe in, in certain circumstances you don't know that well. And and so you sort of have this great goal and then you realize how much time you're spending in one place to go do one thing and how much you're putting on the line for it. But right. I've walked away from all of them seeing these beautiful places, learning a lot again about how to work better with people. And um, I'd say ultimately really is humility mm-hmm. what I've gained from expedition travel and really any of the, the bigger things where there's losses involved failures etc it's it's more and more humility in the mountains and learning your place and that how much risk there really is involved right because you do feel tremendously tiny in those places yeah i think it's a a pretty quick head check yeah you'll know when there's flow you know when you're out in those places you kind of you know when things are going well yeah and you know when they're not yeah. And fighting, sometimes you don't recognize right away that you're not in the flow. And so fighting against the flow is a very complicated place to be in, especially when you've got a team that's trying to get to a summit. Right. How do you navigate that? Uh, <laughs> good question. Still trying to figure that <laughs> yeah. out. I don't know. I, I think, you know, I, I haven't been on an expedition since I was pregnant, like a bigger trip. I've been on smaller stuff since, and so that's been about two years, but I think just try again, if you approach the situations with more humility, come into the group dynamic with better discussion and trying to figure out what's best for the team as a whole. Right. But when you, it's hard to, to identify the lack of flow for any particular person. And hopefully the, the group is open enough that they can discuss it as a whole and decide, all right, we are not jiving or this isn't going in the right direction or you split up as a team. And some people go back to base camp or some people move forward. But in all cases, having the same idea of how to do it safely, sometimes people differ on that, what safe travel is on the mountains. Right. And that's complicated. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, You know, being in the game as long as you have, you've experienced loss in the mountains, friends and accidents. How do you process that? (laughs) Yeah, that's a dark humor laugh. (laughs) It's a, I don't know still. I think 2011 uh, was a really hard year where I lost numerous friends right in a row. I was so close to a lot of those incidents. And I did an interview shortly thereafter that I look back on. I'm like, oh gosh. 
I was really scared to take other people into the mountains and, and be with other people outside of a very small group that I was familiar with and felt comfortable with. Processing the death of seven, eight, nine people in a row, I don't know that I still have. I think that has forever changed me, um, that particular a series of events that winter from Stephen's past to my friend Steve Romeo mm -hmm. to another friend in Alaska, another friend in Telluride. It was so mind-blowing that I don't think you ever can. Right. You just slowly try and over that that summer, I think I was very lost. I was actually transitioning my first move to Jackson. Really, I think it took a couple years to, I spent a lot of time actually, when I, so that winter happened and many tragic events and losses. And I moved to Jackson, big life move. And then the following winter, I kind of put my head down and found a couple friends. And that was the winter I did the Otter Body and the winter I kind of had the opportunity to be a full-time professional athlete for the first time. And that was an ironic twist of fate after mm -hmm. experiencing massive loss in the mountains and then being given this carte blanche to go do whatever I wanted to do. But it turned out to be a really safe season. And I don't know if I could say it was cathartic per se. I think I kind of put my head down, pushed it all away, and just started doing all the things that I I wanted. I got to explore all the lines I wanted to explore and, and pursue skiing at the highest level I could. And interestingly, I don't. those losses didn't quite factor into that. I think if anything, I just needed that time in the mountains to, to not focus on what had happened. Right. And it took, I think, years. It had to go down deep inside somewhere so that I could just function. Mm -hmm. And it's taken years, probably still to this day, to kind of still process each event and understand what happened and why. And you never quite, obviously, can make sense of everything that occurs. But that size of tragedy, I don't even know how to... It, just immense loss is just... I mean, Brutal. I think humans have experienced it in different eras of time through sickness and other things but through your own personal human pursuit this selfish but ultimately really passionate devote practice that we all have and you just kind of have to give it a day at a time i guess right well it's interesting it does seem to come in waves it's really strange to me you know we'll go for five years you know we lost a bunch of people in 2010 and 11 and then we luckily haven't really since you know but it's really strange to me that it comes in such waves yeah and maybe that's just a very um fundamental thing where conditions could be dictating that or who knows that's it's fascinating to me totally different yeah different areas across the country maybe going through similar cycles yeah it makes you question your beliefs a yeah. lot you can go deep on it Definitely. I wish I had great wisdom from what I, I, you know, I always, I've experienced life in my, uh, loss in my personal life, in my family. And I, you know, I, I had to over time try and find silver linings. I don't know that I quite ever found silver linings to the losses of that particular year. But again, I think all you can do is try and learn from it, try and honor their memory and mm -hmm. their spirits and I reflect on it all the time, but I do it really personally on my own time these days. I'll be traveling through the mountains and think of Steve or, you know, think of something Chris Rudolph said to me years ago. And I think that's the best we can do is to those. A lot of those people gave me a lot of gifts in life, which was a really painful, hard thing. Yeah, I think Steve, Steve is like 
unbridled energy. Yeah. That guy, something else. But they all had this, you know, different people have different impacts on your life. And a lot of those individuals that left um, gave a lot of kind, gave me a lot of kind messages to move forward in my career. Right. That I'll always treasure. Yeah. And I've always felt like the, the, you know, Kip and Allison for our community was a yeah. huge loss and and um, their memories still like there's a picture of Kip on the wall, you know, and it'll it'll always be there. But it's almost as if they, you know, they're you could the adage that they're bright, brightly shining lights and they've, you yeah. know, dim too early. But I, I, th- yeah. I kind of feel like there's some there's something going on there where it's almost as if their spirits know you know, so they do burn so hot and do so much and leave us with so much. And maybe that's the the whole point of it, you know? Yeah. I wondered that too. I mean, I, you know, do people get so good in the sense of they have all these gifts or they are so kind to me in a lot of ways. Maybe not everyone sees that, but some of us that knew them better, they just got to a point where there was no more for them to learn. Right. You know, they just had this, they were giving at an ultimate level doesn't make sense of people living their families and their children and things like that and their dear friends and their pets (laughs) all of it but um yeah I guess that's some of the healing part is to think that they just were so good they needed to go somewhere else yeah and they left us with the ultimate gifts and instruction maybe yeah I think back I was in Pakistan with Kip and I did some skiing with Allison and I mean, the list goes on. They small in our environment in our ski community and in the backcountry skiing community, our overlap is tremendous. We've right. all kind of touched each other mm-hmm. from an arm's length or closer, right. you know. And so, yeah, all these folks um, have really left everyone with special things. Right, and it's always it's bothered me, and it hasn't bothered me. You know, when people maybe who don't understand how people live in the mountains and and what we do and whatnot in the the rewards that come from the risks that we take and you know accidents happen and then mistakes happen too right like people fuck it up and 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 die but i think it's interesting that the quote-unquote real world wants to look at it and say well gosh look where they left behind and it's kind of a train wreck and i think there's a lot of truth to that but then there's also you know what we're talking about and you you can't one doesn't outweigh the other you know I think yeah. you have, they're like mutually exclusive and um i've always felt like when i read things you know they people criticizing oh they died doing what they love but there's not a, enough depth of understanding of the, the respect of the craft maybe yeah judgment is an interesting thing and i've had lots of my own i've had to evolve with that as well because early on yeah I judged a lot, and then as time has gone by, I've been just learning more and more about judgment. We judge a lot, and it's, yeah, part of our nature. And with avalanche events and people's ability to come forward and talk openly and the the criticism, I wish we could erase more of the criticism and have more open hearts and open minds. The more time you log in this environment, it's sort of, I think people would really benefit from what people would have to share those that walk away and um and then looking at the what happens in the incidents where those don't Mm -hmm. but having less judgment would be good because we would be learning more as a society right now as a ski society if people could accept um the lessons that come forward more 
with more of an open mind because right. it, we're making it hard on people to talk about events and to talk about the dynamics. And if somebody made a bad call, people tend to come down hard instead of saying, hey, you know, that experts make mistakes. Right. I say a lot right now. It's a sticker in our Alpine Guides office, guide, not God. Mm-hmm. People need to each, even when you hire a guide or you go out with an experienced person, you bring a lot of value to the table in your informal observations. As we go out in the mountains, sometimes a guide will miss something because they're worrying about how you're doing on your gear right. and you'll see something that they didn't. Um, and so that's another, That's you can't judge that leadership role because they're honorable in taking that role. Yeah. And if you're benefiting from that, learn what you can, but also know that you have your own responsibility in it and... Um, I think it's all right for me to talk about, but it was interesting. I was just a group of Californians just came out to Wyoming and we all went on a ski tour and some other friends from Utah came up and Andrew McLean was talking about how he's been doing a slideshow on mishaps in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And Andrew has an amazing delivery Yeah, and he has, gosh, talk about someone, he and Glenn, you know, and yeah. there's guys like that out there and gals too, um, but his mountain sense is incredible. But he has this incredible dry sense of humor and he's Mm -hmm. a great presenter and he brings a lot of dark humor, dry humor, entertainment value. That's why you go to slideshows. I wish I could be as funny (laughs) as some of those guys. Um, But Andrew took a lot of heat from sharing his mishaps and he's no longer doing the slideshow because people thought he was glorifying some of the mistakes that were made and it's far from it it's trying to make light of really hard material to discuss with people right and you know we all have to be more open-armed and more uh, you know more welcoming about this stuff if people are going to come forward and be honest about their experiences we need to receive that with as much grace as we can right i think that um hearing about avalanches events recently again, so much criticism. And it's like, you know, take a step back, give these people an opportunity, these experts that made mistakes to Mm -hmm. share with you how they went wrong. Right. And let these people own some of the poor decisions. I plan to do that in some of my discussions coming up. And I've had people in the past say, you know, how come you haven't talked more about Denali and other things, incidents that I've been involved with? And I actually have where I can. Right. You have to pick the right environment. And sometimes people want to hear it, sometimes don't. But I th- I'd say that's, I thought that was really sad when Andrew, we, we all as a group were discussing recent events and, and it's hard for any of us to talk really openly and really specifically about what we experienced with the human factor, et cetera, without hurting people's feelings and making some people look bad. And that just shouldn't be right. the case ever. Right. It should be an open dialogue in this sort of hippie groovy sport we all indulge mm-hmm. in, but it's taken a serious turn and... People aren't going to learn what they should if it keeps going in that direction. Yeah, I don't see why it wouldn't be welcomed as an instructional tool. But I I think also, too, as humans, people are bad about owning being wrong or making mistakes. And I've always felt like if someone is owning that stuff, they're significantly more enlightened than the people who aren't. You know, I mean, why we're all human. It's never easy. Life's messy and a lot of times not pretty. But like if you own it and learn from it, I mean, what's I would much rather do that than keep repeating the same thing and not trying to elevate my own game. Yeah, I mean, I agree. (laughs) It takes courage to go there. But yeah, 
crazy. Yeah. I've read you think human potential is extraordinary and deserves to be tested. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think that we're all capable. We self-limit more than we know. And I think humans are capable of great, great things. And that really things get in the way in life, whether it's mental mental games or just limiting our self-limiting beliefs, not giving ourselves the opportunity to excel, thinking we're too young, too old, too woman, too man, whatever, too small, too big. I've always been a big proponent for giving it all you've got and testing your boundaries, really let it, giving yourself the opportunity in life to see how far you can go. And recently I've seen... Uh, I'm thinking along the lines of some of the things I'm going to be talking about in the next few days. And uh, the woman that passed away this fall, this past fall, early winter, Inga Perkins, exceptional, exceptional woman. And I was getting ready, a good friend of mutual ski friend of ours, I was getting ready to contact her to try and write a story. Uh, She was just coming on the scene, really had no interest in being the spotlight, social media otherwise. And she has, she had this... uh, exceptional level of talent really I thought I thought was going to redefine females in particular but she was going to level the playing field or even change the level in my mind she was as a ski mountaineer and as a climber 514 plus climber really good skier and was doing bigger descents in the Tetons I actually think I'm going to say don't quote me on this but I'm being quoted (laughs) Uh, she was out um with her partner, Hayden Kennedy, who also passed away. And they went up the Grand Teton. They climbed up it, soloed up it, soloed down it. So, but never got any credit. You know, this is not, whereas that's something, a first female sort of scenario that I would have loved to hear about publicly because Mm -hmm. I think it's just so inspiring. But for her, not important. She was just doing what she did, soloed up, skied down, down climbed the route, which is, I think, quite the next level feat. Then she, this past summer on-sighted the Cirque Traverse, which is something I've attempted with a friend. Pretty burly, I think. There's some moves on there, old school, not by professional climber standards. However, lots of risk, exposure, not a lot of gear, and she soloed it. So not hard with ropes, etc. but she went into the Cirque of the Towers, never been there before, started climbing up the wrong route on Pingora Peak, down climb, harder route, down climbed five pitches, went around climbed up the right easier route, onsighted the whole cirque, pulled all those moves, got back to the car in 17 hours. Same time frame it took myself and my friend to do half the route with ropes, everything else. Wow. Um, to me, just exceptional. Next level, no one had really has done that. She was right. the first female to do that. And I'm sure if she'd gone back, now knowing the route, would have shaved a ton of time off of that. But yeah. Human potential is extraordinary. Right, yeah. And and to your point earlier, people were so critical of their passing and the surrounding of it, which is just, it's such a bummer to me. I think the people that maybe had a little more worldliness or something were able to step back and say, like, yeah, whatever. I don't know all the details personally, but, like, two people died. That's the bottom line, and that's devastating. Yeah. For their families and friends. Yeah. Mountain travel is not easy. And we all have the routines we go through, but there's times where we will cut corners or make a different decision on a certain day. And we all have the right to make that mistake. That's the choice we make when we go on adventure. We can take a wrong turn. I I know people hate the analogy of getting in the car, 
but that is really dangerous. Um, and I think it's really hard to separate out any kind of, a lot of what we do in life, we just sit in inside with closed doors. Otherwise, when you take on adventure, you're taking on risk and right. you don't always make the best decisions for that day. But most of the time we all get away with our mistakes, small mistakes, sometimes larger mistakes, but every now and then it catches the best of the best off guard. And these days it seems like it's a lot of the pros going down. So it's hard with the messaging of you don't know, you don't go. Um, that's prevalent in Jackson right now, a big push to keep people safe and it's noble and it's important to do, right. but yeah. really a lot of it's the mileage, all of us that are getting a ton of mileage, those, those odds are getting smaller every time. Mm -hmm. The more you push the limits, the more maybe you pull in the margins, the more, which you have to do sometimes to succeed. You have to take bigger risks on certain days. Right. And if you don't dot every I and cross every T, which can easily happen in strained environments, then occasionally you'll get caught. Right. When I think with great risk comes great reward, right? That's right. a saying for a reason. And I think maybe you could argue that people who who live their lives in the mountains and take risks and calculate risks and and try to balance it all i mean maybe life is more instructional or authentic or realized that way absolutely maybe if everyone could just go climb and ski it'd be pretty <laughs> epic i know you've talked a lot about humility that's a big deal for you obviously yep how come oh i think first i was on a path to gain confidence and really psyched to prove myself, prove what I was worth, learn more about myself, took more big risks, more ego-driven stuff. And then as I gained the mileage slowly, and as you gain more successes along with the failures, um, you have a better platform from which to evaluate yourself. So you have the opportunity to take more judgment, more than anything with close calls with the deaths around me that I experienced and also with my own really bad mistakes and hubris that got in the way. And luckily, I think I learned my lessons sort of more midway through my career, but probably at the appropriate time. They happen for a reason. You know, you're excelling, 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 and you kind of become not necessarily, in, it never was invinci invincibility, but it was more sort of this ultimate confidence and wanting to push what was possible. Right. And I pushed at times a little too far and got that major slap if I needed it. Not a lot, but enough that um, it only really takes one time yeah. to, for me at least, to gain a lot of insight. I got walked away with an injury, so you have recovery time to really kind of learn that ultimate humility. And never really was I someone who was accept. I just, I have the mileage. And right. I think the mileage leads to being able to take on bigger, more exciting things. But never was I this natural phenom or anything, just somebody who really loved to be in the mountains. And as as time went by, I think I realized, you know, I don't have this exceptional skill or anything. I just am someone who has some skill now because I've done a lot. And that comes, that brings its own level of humility. You know, seeing someone like Inga of this 23 years old, incredible competence, and it took me a long time to be able to do some of the things that she was doing in short order. And that gives you a lot of humility. I think that it also will keep you alive. And it also is a really good perspective to have if you want to have fun with your partners. And yeah, self-preservation ultimately, I guess. 
Right. Yeah, it's interesting because I was reading just this afternoon about Barry Blanchard talking about Mark Twight. And those two together are like, it's fascinating to me. And I'm really excited to sit down, Barry, and talk about it. But he compares it, and we're talking like super sketchy, dangerous, like knocking on death's door, alpine climbing, which is so scary to me. And I quit early on because I was like, man, one one car to car on um, the Liberty Ridge. And I was like, fuck this. <laughs> I'm not dodging rocks for fun. Um, but he compares it to, you know, he says Mark Twight's he's always at war. And he compares him to like the Japanese samurais and how it's it's impossible to know that type of dedication and, and focus and humility um, but there's, there's something there. I think if you're paying attention, I like the samurai analogy. I have a lot of respect. I grew up doing a lot of martial arts. Um, I think you have to have respect for the mountains and if you don't, they will make you have it at some point. But if you log the time and it sounds sort of oovy groovy, but you know, if you're listening to the mountains and you're paying attention and you should be, if you're, if you're wanting to, if you're wanting to develop mountain sense and have any instinct in, in your environment around you, you will learn to be humble because right. it's a daunting place and there's a lot that can unfold very quickly and you need to maintain a, a really balanced outlook on what you're pursuing at yeah. all times, but some of us learn that at different speeds than others. Right, and beat down help along the way. Yeah, and I, you know, you can sometimes see it in people, and you just hope that they'll get their grounding before any large-scale scenario has to happen to make that happen. But with enough time now, I sort of observe people and their movements and, and how they pursue goals, and it's not with judgment. Sometimes it's more with fear, sometimes internally. But uh, you just hope that these bright stars that are shooting for their goals will keep in mind some respect for their travel in the mountains, especially as you're going, if you're going for the numbers game, you know, you're trying to do all of the, any sort of 50 classics or all 14ers or all the highest peaks here and there. You just hope that with continued travel and dedicated movement and nonstopness and not taking a break to reflect that they're giving themselves enough time to take in the environment and be aware of, of what could happen. Right. Not miss the obvious signs. Yeah. Yeah. Which we've all been guilty of, but it's, it's true. And I think I was just thinking flashing on that when you were talking about it, like when there is some kind of, mission or goal you know how we can justify short taking shortcuts or whatever and i look i look at someone like glenn and he's you know he's pushing the envelope for sure but now and what he's doing now he's just he just goes and lives it i think we could all learn a lot from that yep doesn't matter how rad you're getting per se and by not doing so maybe you get rad without even like trying well, I think he, he actually gets pretty rad still these days, and he can cut corners too, but mostly it's he, when he gets rad, no one really knows about it. Right. He's this spring. No last Twitter feed. Yeah. Last spring in the Sierra, he did some pretty spectacular descents. Right. 
yeah, you just don't hear about it, but he's watching the snowpack all season because he's logging the mileage. He sees the subtle changes. He pays attention to wind. He pays attention to the sun. He pays attention to new snow. And sometimes when you're coming in and out of a, a mountain place, you don't necessarily know all the small shifts that are happening. And that can be life or death. That can make the difference on a successful, big endeavor or not. And he's aware of a lot of that stuff. Right. It's cool, too, because I think a lot of people could look at that and think, God, don't don't you need something more from your life, right? And this isn't a knock on Glenn. It's just a kind of talking outside the box. But I look at it and look at his devotion and commitment and that simplified way of living. And I think it's tremendous. And he's probably extremely enlightened in his personal life. Yes, he's definitely a, a Zen master. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of wonderful stories. He has a very rich life. I think that, interestingly, that um, these mountain travelers are very sociable people, and they're surrounded by very close friends and lots of camaraderie. He often travels in the mountains some, in big groups when it's the appropriate time to, and then also times when it's small. But right. always surrounded, throwing large parties, mm-hmm. gathering the tribe. Yeah, he's a tribe master. He is. More, you know, it's Jedi master. Yeah, too. he's def- definitely <laughs> the, the the sensei. What are you most proud of in your life? Oh gosh, I I mean, my daughter. First and foremost, I think that's the greatest gift I've ever had. I'm really excited to show her the world and and have her achieve her potential in any way she wants. Fundamentally that, and then I'd say I'm I'm just proud of pursuing my dreams and having the courage to to give myself, have the having the faith in myself to just keep going and keep trying, even when maybe it wasn't necessarily the path that I um, thought that I deserved to be on, and getting to to live this kind of life, to live in the mountains, to get to see to having experienced the things I have and seeing the places I have and getting to travel through the mountains in different places in the world, I feel like you get a deeper connection than doing it in other ways. And that's just for me personally, other people that's through drawing and other, other vehicles, music, but yeah, ultimately just the, the big picture of, I, I grew up in an environment that was very materialistic And it was really important to me to find a life that was built off of whatever I could find that meant something of significance to me, a more spiritual existence, if you will. And in my own way, in my own time, I've been finding that, and I'm really happy about that. Right. We're all on our own journey. Yeah. Yeah. And I I should say, too, it's been awesome this week to have women come in in the shop and be so stoked on having learned skills from you. And I remember reading somewhere where you expressed some trepidation of, of kind of being a mentor for, you know, the next generation of, of female ski mountaineers or free skiers. And it's been really amazing for me to see that you've obviously honed in on something special and to teach these people. So um, we can't thank you enough for, one coming for one day, let alone four or whatever it is, and and participating in the Mountain Festival and presenting at the Backcountry Women's Show. We definitely owe you a huge debt of gratitude. Not at all. The pleasure's mine. I'm honored to have been included, and what a privilege to get to sort of sometimes life pushes you in a direction that you need to go, and thanks to all of you that I'm getting to connect with some really great people and 
And yeah, I think overcoming some of the things of the past was a hurdle. And now I found sort of this new path and people help you along again mm-hmm. sometimes. So thanks yeah. for bringing me out and giving me the opportunity to work yeah. with great people. You got it. Totally. Well, thank you. Season two of Afterglow continues on Friday, December 7th with iconic adventure photographer Chris Burkhardt. In our chat, he talks openly about his passions, inspirations, and challenges and is one you don't want to miss. Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. It is produced by myself and my lovely wife, Kristen Hanna, who also edits all Afterglow episodes. Miles Heaps was the sound engineer for Kim's recording. The music of season two of Afterglow is courtesy of the Cowboys Fiddle. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. Please subscribe, review, and tell a friend.